0: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, my guest, Kavita Mudon Finn, joins me to talk about maybe the best chapter yet in A Clash of Kings. In this chapter, Renly's intentions are revealed. We anticipate the arrival of Stannis. And of course, we are introduced to one Brienne of Tarth. Kavita, formerly of Cambridge and Oxford and MIT is an expert in medieval history and literature with specific attention to courts and courtly women. So she's the perfect person to join me to cover this chapter. Then after that, Jan Wilson and I discuss Tywin's war strategy. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Kavita Finn. Kavita, I'd like to ask you a question about kingship. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there such a thing as a good king?
1: Oh, are you asking me as a historian or are you asking me this on like general moral grounds?
0: (laughs) I'm I'm hoping for more of a sort of a a comprehensive holistic approach to the question. I mean, I was raised on, you know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, which
2: presuppose
0: like the, like the the final outcome the outcome that you actually want in order to make a happy ending presupposes the idea of a good king mm-hmm. and then in this chapter you know this is sort of renly's what is renly renly's claim to the throne well guess what <laughs> i i'm a better i would be a better king than stannis he's a bad king and i'm a good king so i i guess i'm curious about your take on on the the notion of a good king
1: it's it's a very interesting question because on the one hand it is a very it's a very old idea it's an idea that has been around as long as the idea of monarchy basically it is your aspiration um where monarchy is concerned is to be a good monarch now what does that mean presumably on some level it means stability it means creating um a situation where the people who have put you in charge one way or the other whether that's through lineal succession or election or what have you the people who put you in charge did so because they want they think you will do a good job running everything Mm. and if you do a good job perhaps it is as simple as that like you are a good king if people can look back on your reign and say, "Oh, it was peaceful, it was prosperous, right. it was uh, what have you." But of course, on the flip side, how much of that is within one one person's control? So while you can, while it is very easy to point to a king who does a very bad job and go, "Okay, that like," uh, you could point to I don't know, uh, Cersei, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you could say, "Well." She's doing a very poor job, but you also have to take into account that some of that is her own decision making and some of that is factors that were, that were well beyond her control. So whether or not a monarch is good often depends on how they deal with the situation that they are given. Because there are plenty of things that are outside one person's control. The Weather you can't control if uh, if you have a a, <laughs> a giant, drought. Yeah. yeah, a drought. Like you can't control if there's a drought. You can't to a very large extent. You can't control at least in a pre-modern world. You can't control if there's a plague. Uh, if you're talking about a sort of pre-modern, pre-industrial world, um, there are. It, any natural disaster is going to turn any is going to turn things over any war is going to turn things over did you start wars or did you end them uh did you attempt to expand your territory and if so did you do so in a way that was good for your people rather than bad for them and so all of these different factors come together to uh to address that question um which is to say it's not an easy question to answer and it's one of the things that i think the chapter in particular grapples with is it's not a question that can be answered in the moment it has to be answered in retrospect
3: we're getting geared up for the sixth annual summer badass fest and while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy we've got an early action-packed announcement to make
0: I think it's important to make a distinction here between maybe a good politician and a good and and the notion, the idealized notion of a yes. good king, because I think Renly is absolutely a good politician. You know, oh yeah, in, in in every possible way, Renly seems to, you know, be almost a savant when it comes to politics.
1: Yeah, he is. And that's certainly the way that he's presented. And I love the the narrative choice for this, the perspective choice for this. It's really just uh you get sort of one. I wouldn't go so far as to say seasoned politician, but a seasoned political observer sort of taking all of this in and measuring it yeah. and inevitably just finding it wanting. It's like it's all surface and no substance.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. And I
1: think and what I love is that Kat, Sort of zeroes in on that right at the beginning. She's like, "This is all shiny. This is <laughs> yeah. all surface. Right, right. All superficial. Everything looks great, but the second you poke at it, even a little bit, the whole thing falls to pieces."
0: Yeah, right, right. I mean, I guess you could say, um, just by sheer numbers, there is some substance because yes, he, who's got the biggest army? Mm. Renly does. Now there does. N- now they, not they don't have any... anything. <laughs> 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 yeah, they don't have any, they're not blooded or, you know, they don't, they're just kind of playing at war or whatever. Um, they've had lots of attorneys and whatnot. But in terms of just sheer manpower, there's there's the definitely the potential for substance there.
1: There's substance in the sense that uh, their presence prevents other people from doing things. Right. Um, because no one knows what he's going to do. And they're all watching him. And so that is where, like, the sheer numbers get you. It's like if you have an army of 40,000 people and they're sitting and they're sitting in one place, everyone else who everyone else who's sort of moving around is going to be watching them trying to figure out which which, which direction they're going to go. Um, so, yes, there's absolutely substance under that power. Yeah. Um And the question is sort of what is it going to be used for?
0: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And does it, and does Renly know how to use it? I mean, mm-hmm. so far he's made no mistakes because he's made no moves. Right? He hasn't done anything. <laughs>
1: right, it's easy not to make any mistakes. If I you're mean, not but
0: anything. there is something to be said for okay, my enemies are bludgeoning each other. I'm gonna sit back mm-hmm. and and wait for you know the the casualty count to come in. Yeah, Um, it's it's
1: a smart move. I'm not saying it's a bad move. It's just amusing. It's just an interesting thing
0: to see. Right. So I think that Renly is absolutely a politician. I don't know if there is such a thing as a good king. I I think I feel like, like you know, this is this is a narrative that even sort of bleeds into the modern news because Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you? You know, it's almost like modern presidential politics. What are you running on? Well. You're supposed to run on the economy, but how much does the president actually, how much impact can the president actually make on the economy? It seems like he's one factor in like (laughs) a thousand. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, whether the economy is good or bad or whatever, um, it seems like the sort of the popular narrative is to kind of rest that on the shoulders of whoever happened to be sitting in the Oval Office but, like you're yeah, saying, it's there's much more complicated, than yeah, that. it's is there such a thing as a good king? The answer is, well, what kind of luck did that person have right, mm-hmm. and of course, you know you can you can there, I do believe there's such a thing as a bad king. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. There there absolutely is. No, it's it's one of those aggravating situations where it's much, much easier to point out the bad examples (laughs) than it is to point out the good ones, because the bad ones are super obvious. Uh (laughs) But on the other hand, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, even with the bad examples, uh, you do have to take circumstances into consideration, because... You have a king who shows up in and there's already a civil war going on. That king is already going to be dealing with more problems than a king who was ruling in a time that wasn't civil war. Yeah. Um, and that happens with a great deal of frequency. If you're looking at uh, kind of medieval and early modern Europe, you are constantly having kings coming to power uh, in times of war. Um, or you have a king who comes to power when he's a child. What uh, How? How good, how well is that going to go? Very, not very well under most circumstances. Um, Usually that, uh, usually what that is, is just an invitation for a
0: civil war. Right, yeah. I'm going to read my synopsis for this chapter and then we Mm -hmm. can talk more about the specifics here. (music) Catelyn wakes in the grasslands and breaks her fast with oatmeal and thistle tea. Amidst fear about her family and the kingdom, she rides to meet Renly as Robb's emissary. Renly is encamped with a massive host, and Kat is awed by the size of it. Renly, who is presiding over a tournament, greets Catelyn with courtesy, and they discuss recent events and future prospects. After averting several possible arguments about who is king and who is a pretender, Renly invites Cat to Lord Caswell's feast. Brienne of Tarth, who has been newly appointed to the Rainbow Guard, exchanges barbs with Cat until Renly invites her outside for a walk. Renly impresses upon her the need for Rob to join him and acknowledge him as king. Then Stannis arrives. Bom <laughs> Yeah. Um, so. Well, Kav- you have to do it. You have to. <laughs> Kavita, uh, you have the floor. What are you going to talk about today?
1: Oh goodness. Well, there's so much in this particular chapter. It is so rich and full of symbolism and, uh, and oh, complexity absolutely. and analysis. There's there's two there's lots and lots of things to get into, but. Um, I did like your original angle because it does kind of cover a lot of the themes that uh, that are running through this chapter because it's not just about kingship. It's also the first chapter where we meet Brienne of Tarth yeah. um, who ends up becoming such an important character later on. In That's right. So, uh, and of course, her entire story is tied up in uh, notions of sort of moral good versus uh, systemic good. Um, appearance versus reality, all of those things uh-huh. keep cropping up in hers, uh, in uh, in her story. So I think that it intertwines really nicely with, the, with what you were talking about, kind of the appearance of kingship versus the actuality. Yeah, there's almost the a parallel
0: world. here between the discussion of good king and good knight, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think she really does present as the good knight. Uh, yes. Oh, and then, of course, the question, is there such a thing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because, yes, she's very much presented as sort of the good example of knighthood. Um, and of course, the ideas of good kingship and good knighthood are, uh, are very much intertwined. Yeah. Um, they're both part of that same larger kind of chivalric masculine system.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and it's all kind of muddled in a way because, uh, of course, knights in times of war, as Sandor Clegane reminds everyone over and over and over again, are there for killing. They're not for looking pretty. They're not for uh-huh. kind of behaving gallantly. They're there to literally kill people. Um, and I think Catelyn in this chapter is reacting to the huge whiplash between what she left and what she and where she's arriving. Because she left an actual war camp. She left a military camp that was filled with people who had fought in actual battles um, and who were dealing with kind of the the hardships of being on the road and being in a military camp. And she shows up at this basically tropical resort in the Riverlands, where yeah. they're, oh, in, the, uh, in the Reach, where they're all oh, yeah. uh, I mean, getting drunk and fighting oh, each got, other they... for
0: fa- for fate. Yeah, the, the chapter right and before the term... this talks about the feast at Winterfell. Mm-hmm. And it almost pales in comparison to the the kinds of food that are, mm-hmm. and and they just just the just the comfort, the life comfort, that, that yeah. Renly has taken with him along the, the road. You and know? the
1: consumption, it's it's conspicuous consumption yeah. all over the place. Yeah. yeah um and we've also had uh kind of in earlier chapter in earlier chapters in the book of course you've got you get kind of Arya in the riverlands dealing with all of just the
0: horrors oh, that yeah. are happening Eating there worms and whatnot yeah
1: yeah and this is such a contrast um so i think we're getting getting that from cat's pov is really interesting um because she like she literally can't eat the food partway through, like she's sitting down at this feast and she's like, this is too rich for me. It's making me sick. Right. Um, Cause she's not used to it anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Everything. I mean, we could, man, we could talk about a lot of things. One, <laughs> one of the things that you mentioned was the introduction of Brienne. And I almost feel like given, given her narrative arc, we ought to talk, we ought to, you know, yes. devote a bit of time to Brienne here.
1: Mm-hmm. I love her introduction because when she's first introduced, it's so subtle. It's uh, like Kat doesn't even notice her. She's like, oh, there's a knight. Uh-huh. That's it.
0: Uh-huh. No one
1: cares. It's like, oh, this knight's fighting someone. Oh, the crowd doesn't seem to like him. I wonder why. <laughs> um, it's like doesn't recognize any of the armor, doesn't recognize any of the symbols, nothing. Uh, at one point, like she notices that someone in the crowd is shouting a beauty and it's like, <laughs> that's weird. I wonder why. Yeah. Uh, and it's only when you get kind of the big reveal. And what's interesting is that everyone around her is reacting with anger and they they already know who this is. Like they're reacting with anger. They're reacting with contempt. And Catelyn's immediate reaction is pity.
0: And well, okay, different. yes. However, mm-hmm. I think her immediate reaction is horror.
1: Yes. She's like, oh my gosh,
0: what is this? She says horror, like uh, his mm-hmm. daughter, uh, you know. Yeah. And it's, and, you know, she said with horror. And, mm-hmm. but then afterwards it's like, th- then immediately it kind of. It's pity. It yep. goes to pity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Because. Uh, Which I thought was interesting because mm-hmm. Kat in previously. There was a woman from uh, Bear Island, yes, who was who wanted to fight along the men, and she actually was pretty good at it. And so, cat like mm-hmm. was was sort of a pragmatist. She was like, "Look, we need warriors. I don't care whether they're men mm-hmm. or women or whatever. Um, if she can fight, she should be able to fight." And she sort of takes this very pragmatic view on this. Mm-hmm. But then, as soon as she sees Brienne, she's horrified. <laughs>
1: I think it's partly also because of the crowd's reaction, though, because if you look at how, uh, like, who is this man and why do they mislike him so? Mm -hmm. um, It's partly that because the way that she's been introduced to this knight is someone who has won in the melee, but who nobody wanted to win. Like, what is (laughs) wrong with this person that everyone hates them? And the answer is, it's not this. The the knight is not a man. The knight is a woman.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And. I think that's where the horror comes from. It's like, wait, wait, what? Um, Because the women of bear, uh, because in the case of bear Island, and this is more like, I think we get more about this in the next book. And we, and there, there's a little more detail provided, but um in the case of bear Island, it's kind of the norm. Um, It's presented as something that's just part of the culture there. And right. even though she side eyes it a little bit, she's like, okay, I guess this, uh, I guess that's how it is. But there's also a sense she later, because she's late, she later, I think, encounters the uh, uh, the two ladies uh, from the house of, from uh, Mormont um, a little bit later on after she spent time with Brienne, and she's constantly comparing them to Brienne
2: because right.
1: um, the way that she talks about them, she says uh, like, oh, they seem more, co- they like they're so comfortable, they're so confident, um, they have, they, 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 this is something that they were born to do. Um, whereas with Brienne, Kaplan is constantly kind of observing that she never feels comfortable in her own skin.
0: Mm-hmm. Brienne has a few things going against her. And mm-hmm. I think number one, there is a, there is almost a suggestion that she fought dirty in the melee. Yes. like yes, She pulled is. Loris from his horse in a way that seemed a little bit like, eh, not sure that that was fair and square.
3: Yeah.
0: Um. Then, of course, I think we have an ugly woman trope thing happening here, mm-hmm. where she's, you know, what, however well, however good of a warrior she is, she's ever only going to be judged by her beauty. Yep. And of course, you've got the ironic chance, uh, you know, a, a great beauty, a beauty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. She kind of presents as maybe a little bit less self-aware in terms of. The way that she views her relationship with Renly, and we don't have a lot about that. We have a couple mm-hmm. hints here. Yeah. Um. So yeah, for all of these reasons, <laughs> the world the world is against her, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Renly seems to be for her in in a way that that almost makes me think, yeah, he is a, he is kind of good king, you know. <laughs> At the that moment where I'm almost even charmed by Renly myself.
1: Yeah, it is like. And I and I think that uh, we can see it both ways, because like, on the one hand, yes, he does give her a chance and nobody else does. He is kind to her when nobody else is. Mm. Um, But it's also worth remembering that he's getting something out of it, too. Um, What do you think he's getting out of it? absolutely on question. Worship is what
0: he's getting <laughs> That's it. true.
1: Um, because the way that she treats him uh-huh. is uh, like, she will literally do anything.
0: Yeah. She'll die for, for him. If, if, yeah, she will. Yeah.
1: And I think he, he absolutely takes her at her word on that. Um, so I think he is aware of her feelings for him, at least on some level. Uh-huh. Um, and he's willing to use them.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: But at least he's nice about it.
0: So, yeah, we find out that. that he's been holding that that cloak, uh, which means that mm-hmm. it, it's a it's basically an office for um, Bearson Selmy. Yeah, who has disappeared, who has disappeared. Now, what Selmy would bring to the table is a certain kind of panache and sort of political legitimacy
1: prestige and authority yeah prestige also, authority also you know experience
0: and yeah. warfare and whatnot but there's no
1: it's mostly about optics though yes, it's it, less yes. about kind of his experience and it's more about like look at who i have uh-huh. i have all the trappings uh-huh. uh, all the trappings of kingship is basically what he's aiming for. right like, look i have the giant army i have the beautiful wife i have these i have this rainbow guard of knights and also look who's with me right the most celebrated guy in the entire seven kingdoms yeah
0: yeah that's right brienne is almost the opposite it's like she the optics are not good but man will she love him and i and he's Mm -hmm. i think he has figured that out he's figured out the the most fundamental thing for kingship or at least you know this is what he believes Is do they love you? Mm -hmm. They do not love. They fear Stannis. They respect Stannis. They do not love Stannis. They do not. And they they will they will love me. And here here's the proof of it. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. No, Brienne is functionally she's kind of important for telling the story of Renly. But in retrospect, it's almost like it was actually the reverse. It was Renly who was important for sort of creating the the first cracks of the cocoon so that Brienne could emerge. And, it, and it's actually her story we're going to be following. Yes. Yes, because Kat's going to bow out in the next book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did love... I'm, I'll read this little part here. There's a little foreshadowing here. She's yeah. looking at a breastplate that has mm-hmm. a, a great sheen to it so she can actually see a reflection and it says gazing back at her as if from the bottom of a deep pond, the face of a drowned woman, Cat thought, can you drown in grief? And I think, of course, this is just a beautiful little foreshadowing image of what happens with. Yes. Yes, it is. She, She's actually she's going to be uh, killed and and dragged on the bottom of a river. Right. So she mm-hmm. actually will be a drowned woman. But she specifically draws out the metaphor of grief, which is, I, I, I do think, is part of her narrative even more than the drowning.
1: Oh, yeah. Right. It's grief and vengeance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Let me ask you this question. Kat mm-hmm. is very critical of everything that Renly has done. Yes. yes.
3: wants a pact with us, he should come himself not hide behind his mother's skirts? My son is fighting a war, not playing at one.
0: Don't worry, my lady, our war is just beginning. Uh, you know, he's playing at war, he's feasting, he's bringing creature comforts with himself on the road. He actually didn't help Ned in his time of need, even though Ned refused, Mm-mm. you know, an offer. Um, he's forgotten about Stan. It's like everything that Renly does is wrong, basically. Yes. <laughs> and I wonder if if it's warranted. I, I, won- I wonder if, like, well, that's kind of her perspective on this. In reality... This guy has is in the best position to take the Iron Throne.
1: It is. It's very interesting because on the one hand, yes, she is seeing through a lot of what's going on. Um, and she's able to say, like, well, why are you doing this when there's such devastation happening several hundred miles north of where you are? Yeah. Because um, I think that's part of where the judgment comes from is because she's seen how ravaged everything has been, and she's seen people starving. She's seen people, des- pe- the the villages destroyed, the homes destroyed. Because she, it's worth remembering that the way that she traveled, the ge- geographically speaking, Catelyn would have wa- would have traveled right through the worst of um Tywin's campaign in the Riverlands. Huh. Like the, she would have seen the after effects of that, and. So going from that to what Renly has set up, while yes, I don't know that it's necessarily entirely warranted, uh, I can see how she got there because it's a night and day difference between what she has left and what she's now seeing. And I think especially the tourney rubs her the wrong way because (laughs) she has just seen, like, she witnessed multiple battles, like actual honest to goodness battles uh, where her son put himself in physical danger every single time. Yeah, and she has already seen like uh, Lord Carstark's sons got killed. Well, and, and her father's sick. on death's door, right? Yeah, and her father's at death's door, and her brother is fighting in the Riverlands, and and her ki- and her two children are still trapped in King's Landing, and right. her other two children are back in which t- like she's she is dealing with so much right now. And to see Renly, who, as you say, is the best place to actually do something in this situation, the best place to actually take on Tywin Lannister, to see him sort of hanging out and feasting (laughs) and having a great time. Like, I can absolutely see why that makes her angry.
0: Well, and also, even though she's not from the north, she's she's become a Stark and yeah, these are and her people. Her image of what it means to be a serious man mm-hmm. and a man of wisdom is Ned. It's uh, as yeah. r- is anything <laughs> anything but Ned, right?
1: Yeah, she she looks at him she's like, "Oh, you're such a baby. Uh-huh. You have no idea. These are the nights of summer and winter is coming." Like that I think that encapsulates everything. She's like, "That like these you're playing at war." Uh-huh. It's I love the put down that she gives to Randall Tarley, And I love that that is our introduction to Randall (laughs) Tarley. Like after all of the horrors we get from Sam's chapter, when we actually meet him, Uh he's having his, he's having his butt head to him by Cat. Yeah.
0: Right. (laughs) That's so
1: satisfying. I I hope, I don't think he'll ever find out, but that was very satisfying. Oh
0: goodness. Okay. So this brings me to an interesting exchange between Cat and Brienne. And I Mm -hmm. think it, I think that in order to kind of hear this correctly, we kind of almost have to set aside the brand we meet in the show. Yes. But, yes, we do. Okay. So Kat is having a conversation with Lord Rowan and mm-hmm. she's, she's looking around at the table and saying, you know, mentioning all the things we just mentioned Yeah, and she pities them because they're all mm-hmm. young and they think they're immortal and, and, and he says, why pity? And she says, because it will not last, Cat answered, sadly, because they are nights of summer and winter is coming. Now, OK, now Brienne speaks up. Yeah. She says, Lady Catelyn, you are wrong. Brienne regarded her with eyes as blue as her armor. Winter will never come for the likes of us. Should we die in battle, they will surely sing of us. And it's always summer in the songs and the song in the songs, all the knights are gallant. All the maids are beautiful and the sun is always shining. I thought that was a a, a very interesting statement and almost, and I'll get your take on this. It almost underlies a little bit of realism and a little bit of cynicism on the part of Brienne.
1: It, yes, it, on the one hand, Brienne is very cognizant of like, I I mean she's she understands it. I don't know that she understands it on a visceral level until we get to A Feast for Crows. Uh-huh. But she does understand that the serv- the choices that she has made the the choice to enter the life of a knight is one where she may well die. The goal isn't necessarily to not die the goal is to die in such a way that you will be remembered. Yeah,
0: she's almost resolved to do. It. She's like, "Look, I have yeah. chosen a I've chosen a life where mm-hmm. I will die young and glorious."
1: Yes, it's it's part of that uh, that chivalric masculinity. What is more important than your own life is your legacy. Right. And the way that you uh the way that you create that legacy is by dying gloriously in a good cause
0: or what is perceived to be a good cause. And this, okay, so this, we don't get a lot of information, but this coupled with the fact that she kind of fights dirty a little bit during the tourney, mm-hmm. but wins the tourney because of it. Yep. And then this little statement that almost, it, it it's on the surface, it could read as idealized view of knighthood, nice. but underneath yep. it, it's almost like saying, yeah, of course I'm going to die young, but don't pity me, you know? I, I just feel like this is a, a very different picture of Brienne Tarth than I've seen in the show.
1: Yeah, and I think well, I think Brienne is naive to some extent just because she's young. Yeah. She's only 17, 18 years old, right. so she's just she's just a kid. Um but in as much as uh she is a kid, she has experience with kind of marginalization in a way that most of the knights surrounding her particularly someone like loris Terrell does not have or someone like Renly for that matter. Right. Like everyone takes Renly at his word. Everyone gives Renly the benefit of the doubt. Renly gets away with everything. Mm-hmm. Like he even gets away with literally claiming a throne for the lulls. Um like he decides that he wants to claim the throne not because he has any sort of specific right to it, but because he thinks he'd be better than Stannis. Right. His his entire thing is rooted in, I'm better than Stannis, therefore I deserve this. And it doesn't even occur to him to sort of take a step back and go, hey, maybe I shouldn't start a war in the middle of a war that's already happening.
0: Right. Well, <laughs> It
1: doesn't even occur to him the amount of damage right. that
0: he's causing. And I almost feel like, Okay, so we were talking about the difference between Brienne, show versus um, book. Yes. Renly is different in the show as well. And I feel like yes. w- when I read Renly in this chapter, this is a man that's just brimming with confidence. He's almost yes. overconfident. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone else is kind of defensive of his stature as king. It's almost like he's like, he kind of laughs it off. Yeah. And he's, you know, it it makes him a good politician. That makes people, you know, people are drawn to him because he's an Mm -hmm. easy, easy smile and and pretty confident. And he looks in this, in this, he looks like like Robert Reborn, you know? Yep. He's tall and good looking. And mm -hmm. I almost feel like the show made him a bit more immature. Mm, insecure, insecure. I and think I think insecure. that the reason why they did that is they wanted to feminize him in some way.
1: I think yes. I think part one of the things that they did is rather than stick to this extremely sort of hyper masculine image, yeah. and like because the thing is, they could have done the same thing with his relationship with Laura that they did in the show, and they could have kept him as this extremely. Mm-hmm overcome because it's not just that he's confident this scene is absolutely dripping with foreshadowing like this dude is absolutely ripe for a fall we know he's going down the question is how
0: yeah right yes and and i think that this chapter ends in a way that's almost perfect you know because he's discussing his his plans he's discussing all of his power and his his strategic acumen with cat and he, and he says and don't forget my brother holds all the waterways and she's like uh, i think that you're the one that forgot stannis
1: yeah it's like your brother who's currently at war with yeah. you <laughs>
0: and then at the end he le- he legitimately is surprised by the arrival of St- stannis so anyway i just thought mm-hmm. Brenley is very different brienne is very different but in many ways, they're, you know, they're they're pretty faithful to the plot points. Um, yes, and uh, for me, I feel like Renly. If it not for magic, Renly probably has the right of it. He's probably like I'm. I'm pretty well positioned to take King's Landing when I decide to do it.
1: Whenever he gets around, whenever to I it. get around yeah.
0: to it, right? And uh, and interestingly enough, you know, you know this for the purpose of the narrative his pride just foreshadows his downfall right Mm -hmm. but in terms of just being strategically right i think he is i i think he is right i think he i think he's kind of looked around and seen all of the people that possibly could have a claim to the throne and kind of made that cynical judgment no one really has the right to a throne there there're real no mm-hmm. there're no real targaryens around here
1: nope
0: um you know joffrey is is not robert's son and robert was a usurper in the first place so yeah. his lineage doesn't really matter doesn't really matter that stannis was robert's older brother uh the way that this world works is that if people love you And if you have a bigger army, and if you happen to be in the right place at the right time, you get to be king. Uh, Clearly, he has read his Machiavelli. Yes, right. Exactly. (laughs) And so in this way, he's so different than Ned. He's so different than Stannis. And uh, he's got everything going for him. And he's going to die very, very soon. (laughs) Well, and
1: I think think that Cat has the right of it when she points at... Uh, when she realized, when she points out not only how young everyone is, mm. um, it's like they do not remember, they're young enough, they don't remember the last war.
0: Huh.
1: Uh, cause even Renly was only like six or seven years old, like young enough that it would have registered that things were wrong and that things were not, that things were not good but it wouldn't have re- it wouldn't have struck him the same way that it did either of his elder brothers mm. cuz both of them were very much scarred by the whole thing um yeah. in different ways yeah um and redley simply wasn't like he he just it does not affect him the same way he doesn't have those traumatic memories the way that every that all of the other sort of adult right. characters do and He's surrounded in one of the things that Cat notices is he's surrounded by all of these young people, people who are younger than him, and none of them remember it either. So, even the and it's a contrast to Rob, who is surrounded by these older characters who have all seen other wars and who have all seen other conflicts.
0: Well, and I think there's a subtext to what Cat notices like she's looking around the room and mm-hmm. She's seen that they're all young, and she's gonna say. She kind of says, "Well, you know, they're gonna grow up because war grows people up." And I think yep. that the subtext here is that Renly's about the age Robert was when he took the throne, and Ned was really Just young. About. You know, mm-hmm. I was really young, and all in all of these, you know, back during Robert's rebellion, they were babies. And I, were? I think that there is a, a a subtext here that this is generally how men in this world grow up and how women in this world grow up there there's a a war that grows them up but the other thing I wanted to talk about was I think that this this portion of the book highlights the boredom of war Mm -hmm. you know the tedium yeah right I think there's there's something about maybe it was Hemingway I'm not sure but there was something like you know, war is like these these long drawn out moments of boredom punctuated by terror.
1: Yes, yes. I don't know if it was Hemingway, but it was it was World War yeah,
0: One. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. And I think that you know what's Rob doing? He's deciding to march because he knows that his men are going to get stir crazy, and restless. He may not mm-hmm. be able to keep his hosts together if they get bored. And then you have. You know, you've got all of the the stuff at King's Landing where they're just basically waiting and waiting, their food supplies dwindling. Mm. And uh, you know, there is actual horror happening in the Riverlands, but here in the Reach, nothing. We have a tournament happening. You know, yeah. It's, it's like, what do you do when you're geared up for war and nothing's happening? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and you and play this is at it. <laughs> this is pretty great at showing like actually it will tell you something about someone's personality what they decide to do during these times because there are a number of things
1: that uh that they could have done with this gigantic army they could have marched towards king's landing and laid siege to it Mm -hmm. they could have marched north into the riverlands and joined that fray. there's a whole variety of things they could have done um but instead they are sitting and they are waiting which is not bad strategy all things told all things being equal like it certainly keeps them alive and it certainly keeps them from uh makes means that everyone else is waiting on them but it also means that they're giving this impression of being kind of above all of it Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: and on the one hand you can make the arguments like oh that's very smart he's keeping his people alive but on the other hand it's like well what about everyone else if he's supposed to be planning to rule the entire country and he lets half of that country burn what kind of a king does that make him
0: yeah yeah and the and the the, the stark contrast between the food supply in king's landing and
1: mm-hmm. and
0: all of the wealth of highgarden basically
1: yeah and especially later on, when it's made clear that they're basically choking the roads so mm-hmm. that the food supply is uh, is artificially low, right. like they are the reason for people starve. Like, ah, oh, well, all these be- all these <laughs> wonderful feasts don't come from nowhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, notable introductions in this chapter: we meet, of course, Brienne in her blue armor. Uh, we meet Shad. We meet Colin of Greenpools. Uh, the Mander River, we meet for the first time, and Bitterbridge, which is the seat of the Caswells. And, uh, of course, you mentioned Randall Tarley and his sword, Heartsbane. <laughs> oh,
1: Randall And, uh, and I thought the worst.
0: Sir Tanton was funny to me. Like, he's mm-hmm. he's like, you know, all bravado saying he's going to take down the Hound and, you know... <laughs>
1: Now interestingly we the we meet Lord Rowan for the first time yeah. who is later who later becomes kind of this voice of reason in, around Stannis oh, which is interesting in its own right. I didn't
0: remember that. That's interesting. He does.
1: Like I don't remember how long it lasts, but he does at least for a time.
0: Yeah, I, or no, I actually, about no, wait,
1: that. actually, no, not Stannis' council. He actually ends up in King's Landing. That's where he ends up oh. because he actually ends up in King's Landing. I'm completely misremembering. I switched him with someone else. Uh, no, he ends up in King's Landing because there's this great scene where he is in the, the small council chamber and Tywin is talking about the arrival of the Dornish party. And Tywin is, of course, being completely blasé about the whole thing and Tyrion, it's Tyrion's pov and there's this line about how like lord rowan looked like he was going to vomit sure
0: sure um i in terms of show differences i really noted the colors the Mm. the colors in this chapter are just uh, i mean they're very yes
1: technicolor it is like it is like 1950s Hollywood movie. Yes. That's what this is.
0: You know, Brienne's, Brienne's armor, armor is bright blue. And, of course, I think that this is like an homage to the, the blue seas. The sapphires of, of tar Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. And then, you know, she's looking at Renly's uh, amazing armor in his pavilion and it's it's bright green and shine to a glimmer. You know, in the show everything was kind of like Drap. leather and muddy. <laughs> it neat, yes.
1: Like it it didn't look that different from what we had left behind, which was very disappointing because what you need is that contrast
0: uh-huh.
1: um between sort of the uh, the ravages of the riverlands and the plenty of the reach, because it's supposed to be this contrast. You're talking about the land that is at war and the land that is obviously and manifestly not mm-hmm. at war.
0: Well, yeah, and, and these guys and you don't have course, that contrast. These, it shows. Yes, these knights, these warriors are unblooded and they, they have, their armor is, is it's fancy and new. And, you know, you've got this, you know, you got sigils and flags all over the place, you know, orange and black butterflies. And, you know, every, everything is, is very, it's almost idyllic, right?
1: Yes. Yes, it is.
0: Um, So anyway, I noted that they did that a bit differently. Yeah. And then of course I think we've, we've already noted the, the difference in, and Brienne's character, the difference in Renly's character, um, which I, I found very interesting, uh, even mm. though the plot points are are not that different. No notable departures in this. No, not yet. Uh, you <laughs> that's know. for the next chapter. That's a lot of notable <laughs>
1: departures in the yeah, next chapter. <laughs> yeah, of
0: course. Of course. Uh, was there anything else that you noted about this? Like, you know, through, you know, your professional eyes, you noted, oh, that's interesting.
1: One of the things that I noticed in that uh, I kind of like to keep an eye on, especially in con, especially sort of looking at the the contrast between the show and the books, um, it is this is about as close as we get to confirmation that Rentley is gay.
0: Oh, interesting! Like, Why, how's the,
1: that? Just looking the way that he's described, the way that he the way that he talks about uh, Marjorie, the way that he talks about Laura. I mean, obviously, this is never confirmed. It is never specifically and explicitly confirmed. Later, there's references that great made about Loras, but it's never, it's not made explicit the way that it was in the show.
0: Yeah, in this, Um, you've got, you know, you've got the scene at the feast where he's sitting in between Loras and Marjorie, in between Loras and Marjorie, and he'll give like Marjorie a little bit of attention, but he just laughing not at all of Loras's jokes Mm -hmm. and leaning into Loras and. You know, just loving Loras. You know, from Cat's mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah. And of course, I, yeah, I mean, to me, if I had never seen the show, I would just think, "Man, this guy is just a- as good of a politician as you <laughs> as you get." Uh, but of course, I think I do think that Martin has confirmed this about Renly.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, it's. Like, there, once you get in across the five published books in the series, there are enough references to it that we can pretty much assume that it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like, it's the way that Cat describes him. She talks about his hair is artless. Uh, she talks, uh, this is Loras, mm-hmm. like, she talks about how Loras' hair is artless. She talks about how, like, he's, he's notably beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that uh, she's one of the few people who doesn't immediately compare him to Jamie Lannister. Because um, pretty much everybody compares Loras to Jamie Lannister, huh. except for Catelyn.
0: Interesting. Because
1: that... Ned compares the two of them during the Tourney of the Hand, I seem to remember. Um, and, of course, Jamie is constantly comparing them to one another.
0: Huh. Interesting. There is a a, a little hint... In the first novel, Renly shows Ned a locket that he has.
1: Yes, of Marjorie, picture of Marjorie, and it's
0: supposed to be a picture of Marjorie. And Ned's looking at it, and look, it looks off to Ned. And I, my, my impression of that was that actually it's a it's a portrait of Loras. That he's passing on.
1: Res- I thought it was Ned's res- Ned's response was to the uh, was to Renly's suggestion that Marjorie looks like Leon. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it Ned doesn't is like, look no, like, no, she Liana actually doesn't look anything like Leon. Right. No. right,
0: right, right, right.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, that Renly is the one who makes that comment, and it does suggest that he doesn't pay very much attention to women's looks. It's like, oh, they have, she has dark hair, she has dark hair. Of course, they look alike. <laughs>
0: sure, 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 sure. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it is subtle, and um, I don't. If we didn't have the show, I I don't know that I would catch it.
1: Yeah, and I feel like there's a line that Loras has later on that really kind of clinched it for me it's uh, when the sun has set no candle can replace it oh um i think he has that i think he says that to
0: jane oh meaning oh meaning that now that that renly's now that renly is is
1: gone that's why it's it's his explanation for why he joins the king's right because jamie's like you're so young you could marry you could have children why won't you go Uh, do that uh, and uh and laurus's reply is when the sun has set no candle can replace it
0: Meaning that the, the love of his life he, is gone, and now his life yep. is dimmer.
1: Yep, exactly. Interesting. And so he gives, so he joins the king's guard because he thinks that his, like I've already lost the love of right. my life, I don't, I don't need anyone else. I don't want anyone else.
0: Right. Kavita, thank you so much for joining me today. What You're a very well, what done. a rich chapter.
1: Oh, I love like Kat's chapters in A Clash of Kings are just such a beast. Like, they're so good and they're so complicated and there's so much to dig yeah. into. No, I, I always love talking about
0: Well, what I and also the way that this chapter ends, it almost feels like, okay, now things are revving up. Like, Stannis yep. is here. We're finally going to see an Stannis actual clash here. of kings, you know?
1: Yes. Player three has entered. <laughs> King three.
0: <laughs> right, right. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. There's a degree of magic in that you know I mean there is a an otherworldly sense of you know like when you when you remove morality mm. you know what what's a smoke baby at this point in the book she has two smoke babies oh. yeah like twin smoke babies twin smoke babies. that's yeah. a lot to take care of <laughs> What do you feed a smoke baby? I'm assuming that they don't breastfeed. Only like 45-year-old men breastfeed in this show. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing is it's like didn't it become a smoke man and we see smoke man legs and before it Yeah, I guess you don't really need to to suckle the the baby if he just becomes a man right away. Well, what I'm saying is now that he's a 45 year old man, he can wrestle because <laughs> that's the rules of the show. The <laughs> Those, yeah. We well, were talking about the rules of the show, right? So yeah. That's... Yeah. I, I understand them in regards to everything. Yeah. Everything ends like the grapes are wrath. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wanted to ask you what in the world, Tywin's strategy is you know we see chapter after chapter of just you know the chapter here opens mm-hmm. with this destruction of the countryside and, and capturing or killing civilians and I know he's he's waging some sort of total mm-hmm. war but then we see the impact of that later in the book when the villagers rise up they hate the Lannisters um, you know Joffrey is nearly mm-hmm. killed uh, they are ambushed on their way back to the castle I mean the people are furious that their homes are being destroyed and their crops are being destroyed and their families are being torn apart or killed. And Tymon is supposed to be a pretty smart guy. What is his strategy by basically unleashing the mountain (laughs) into the riverlands and having him just pillage and destroy everything in Mm -hmm. his wake? What is the strategy here?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I feel like I only know this because I've talked to a few historians on this matter, but it's sort of counterproductive. Mm Mm-hmm. You could say, like, there's a strategy and a consequence to what Tywin's doing. I think that the strategy is these men from the north, you know, Rob Stark's army, they are short on supplies. So if I burn all of the <laughs> every possible resource around the Stark army, then they will end up starting to have. Trouble feeding the you know feeding the horses, feeding them the men you know all of that business, and they yeah. will end up at, at a disadvantage because of that. But the, here's the consequence: the consequence to doing that <laughs> is you've created sort of that it's kind of the breadbasket of King's Landing, and yeah. and yeah. you know so you're thinking, well, you know my my children who are in King's Landing are going to be well fed because they're rich. And the commoners are, you know, they're going to survive at least long enough so that this isn't going to be a problem. It ends up being a big problem. You know, the people end up rebelling because they're so hungry. So I don't...
2: It just seems short-sighted for Tywin. That seems like something Cersei would do. She doesn't care anything about the people. I'll burn it all down if I have to to win. Mm -hmm. But Tywin, I just thought, was maybe smarter than that and it seems more of a short-term victory as opposed to thinking long-term okay you know we make it so impossible for rob's army to survive by burning everything great but once we've won <laughs> how do we rule
0: yeah yeah here's one way to think about it if if taiwan is sort of banking on the war being over sooner than later then the strategy's probably fine. But the well, yeah. longer that he starves the the food routes, the longer it's gonna be a problem for the people of King's Landing. So I don't um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a flaw.
2: But you you might be onto something though when you say that he assumes that he will win. Yeah. And so what's the harm in again, the short term will burn a few villages, but ultimately We're going to, you know, win against this upstart. Who does he think Mm -hmm. he is? Not only is he young, he's not a Lannister. He's not us. And so there's no way he can prevail over our forces, even though everything is proving that to be Mm -hmm. untrue. um, I think everybody underestimated Rob. And, you know, I I think at this point in the book, he's doing really well. (laughs) So, you know, maybe there is this moment where Tywin is beginning to maybe rethink strategy, but... It really does seem—I don't know—maybe out of character, uh, just in terms of what we know, well, here's, you know, about Tywin. Here's
0: the other thing about this: is that it seems like Tywin's strategy is not to face Rob head on anymore, mm. and it's—he's almost doing this rope-a-dope thing where he—he's yeah. sort of like dancing around the Stark army, and it's almost like he thinks these Northmen are—they live to fight. If, and, and if yeah. they if they got a good battle in front of them, they will be motivated. But if I'm just sort of like burning these these villages that are maybe a day's ride away, and keeping them chasing their tails, they're kind of gonna get bored and leave. And that ends up kind of happening for Rob because there's no yeah, battle like right before his army. They start to get a little bit antsy.
2: Yeah, I don't know. There's, I think there's also something to be said about how, you know, maybe the actual military strategy isn't the smartest, but Tywin has a good ability to pivot. And in the later chapters in A Clash of Kings, it's Mm. not coincidental that it's Roose Bolton who shows up at Harrenhal. And so already those plans, that alliance between the Lannisters and the Boltons, that's already happening, unbeknownst to Rob. And so maybe, you know, Tywin is assessing the situation, thinking, okay. Um, this is not working in the way I thought. Rob is stronger than I thought. He's not backing down mm. the way I thought. Uh, now we need to use our heads as opposed to our swords. And Tywin, of course, is, is quite a master at that. So um, maybe, I, maybe I'm being too hard on, on Tywin Lannister. Maybe he does know what he's doing. <laughs> but in the short term, when you're just reading these early chapters, you're thinking, my goodness, this is not the way to win the people. Uh, this is not the way to rule long term.